How beautiful is that, huh? Father and Son, one in Christ, praying in two different languages. That's just awesome. And uh, hearing my my brother speak in Spanish, me hace querer predicar en español. Makes me want to preach in Spanish, but I think I'd lose maybe 90% of you, so... I'll go on with English. Boring. (laughs) After Jesus arose from the dead, and just before he rose to rejoin his father, Jesus gave the church its mission. Take the gospel to the world. To the world. Make disciples. That's a big job. You may be asking, well, what role can I play in this great adventure? Does it require someone with special training and specialized skills? The photograph that you're looking at here is the graduating class from 1986 from Dallas Theological Seminary. Let's see if we can zoom in and see if you recognize anyone. Back when I was young, no facial hair. This was back before the world was in color. Some of you have lived in that era. This is my graduating class from Dallas Seminary. Some people in this class have gone on to establish huge ministries. Some people in this class have become famous. There are a couple of names that I could mention and you would go, wow, really? Not my name, but... But there's something that's very true of every single face that you see. Everyone is normal, ordinary, and every single one has unique gifting from God. And everyone plays a unique role in the advance of the kingdom of Jesus Christ in the earth. Every person is... A unique mix of flesh, blood, bones, defects, errors, and potential. And every person in this group, just like every person in this group, is living proof that the plan of God does not depend on special people. Thank God, it depends on normal people, real people. You know, there's a clever cultural lie that has made its way, unfortunately, into churches and ministries, and that clever cultural lie is this. God can only use someone who's super gifted. 
Someone like Billy Graham, super gifted in evangelism. Someone like Chuck Swindoll, super gifted in writing, in preaching. Someone like John Maxwell, super gifted in leadership. And thank God for the gifts that God has given each of those men. He's used them tremendously in his, in his kingdom. Thank God for the gifts that he's given those men. But it's a lie that God can only use super gifted people. Today we're going to meet the players on Paul's team. The passage that Mark read for us, Colossians chapter 4, verses 7 to 18. Uh, I invite you to hold that text close, and we're going to consider um, what may appear to us just a long list of names with little or no interest and even less spiritual value. What in the world are you going to say about this list of names? You know, the the genealogies in the list of names, that's the part of our Bible reading where we kind of go like this. But for Paul, this is more than just a list of names. Each name had a face. And each face and each name had a story and meant something special to to the apostle who was in prison. And I think the Holy Spirit and Paul would have us learn a couple of things from this passage, which appears to us as just a list of names. I think the first thing that we can learn from this passage of Scripture is that we need to get in the game and play as a team. In other words, in the church of Jesus Christ, everyone participates And we work together. Get in the game and play as a team. Now, the first person that we meet on Paul's team, the first name on the list, is a guy by the name of Tychicus. And I call him the faithful servant. Tychicus was a highly valued team member. In in verses 7 and 8, we read about him. And and he's given three designations here in this text. Tychicus is called a dear brother, a faithful minister, and a fellow servant. And Tychicus is a flesh and blood example of the principle that faithfulness in small things leads to responsibility in greater things. In other words, when you're faithful to do what seems maybe like a menial task, it doesn't seem like much, but if you're faithful in that, God and other people notice that faithfulness and you're given more and more responsibility. Here's what we know about the life and the developing ministry of Tychicus because he does develop within Scripture. First of all, He's, he's a letter carrier and he's an encourager. That's his role and that's his function here in the book of Colossians. He's just carrying the letter. And Paul says here at the end of verse 8 that he's, he's coming to encourage you. He's an encourager. He's bringing a letter of encouragement. So he's a letter carrier and encourager. But as we look further into Scripture, we see that 
Tychicus develops. In Titus chapter 3 and verse 12, we see that Tychicus moves on from letter carrier to become a fill-in for Titus. Here's what Paul says. As soon as I send Artemis or Tychicus to you, do your best to come to me at Nicopolis because I have decided to winter there. So Paul decides to send Tychicus to take Titus's place. He was faithful to carry the letter and encourage people. And then Paul says, I need him to go over there. But that's not the end of the story for Tychicus. In 2 Timothy, Paul's final letter, in chapter 4, in verse 12, Paul simply says this, I have sent Tychicus to Ephesus. I've sent him there. He's going to be the minister in Ephesus. So we see him develop from a seemingly small, menial task of carrying a letter, encouraging people, to be a fill-in for Titus to become the minister in Ephesus. Tychicus carried a letter and brought a, letter and brought a message of encouragement. And it may not have seemed like much, but he was proving that there are no little people and there are no little places and there are no little tasks. The next person we meet on Paul's team is Onesimus, the runaway convert. We meet him in verse 9. Now, Onesimus was a local boy. Paul says, Onesimus, our faithful and dear brother, who is one of you. He was a local boy. He was from Colossae. Onesimus, a local boy with an ugly past. He was a native of Colossae, and he was a slave of a man named Philemon. And at some point in his story, Onesimus decided that he had had enough of the slave life, so he decided to run away. And in the process of running away, he helped himself to some of Philemon's money. Little cash for the road, you know. The story of Onesimus and Philemon is told in the biblical book of Philemon. And Onesimus ran all the way to Rome, where Paul was in prison. Somehow, the runaway slave and the imprisoned apostle met one another, probably when Onesimus was arrested and put in prison with Paul. And guess what? Paul leads Onesimus to Christ. And now the slave is no longer a slave. He's a brother in Christ. That's what the book of Philemon clearly tells us. And guess what? Paul tells Onesimus to go home. To go home... <laughs> to the master that he robbed and stole from. Can you imagine? By law, Philemon had the right to kill Onesimus. Can you imagine? Onesimus was a local boy. Everyone in, new, in, in town knew what he had done. How could he return home and face the home folks? 
But Onesimus did go home. And he went home a changed man. He went home not a slave, but a brother. He went home radically new. And folks, you know that only the gospel of Jesus Christ can so radically change a man that it would cause him to do the right thing when it's so incredibly difficult to do. Some of you can probably tell your own stories of how the gospel has radically changed you and how the gospel empowers you to do hard things when it's the right thing. Onesimus was part of the team. God changed him. God transformed him. And Paul recruited him to be part of the team. So we've met Tychicus. We've met Onesimus. The next person on the list is Aristarchus, the devoted companion. Now, Aristarchus was a good man to have in a tight spot. Paul got in a lot of tight spots. Sometimes he put himself there. Sometimes the Holy Spirit put him there. But Paul knew what a tight spot was. And every time there was a tight spot, guess what? We find Onesimus or or Aristarchus. Aristarchus was no fair-weathered friend. How many of you got fair-weathered friends? They only show up when the work's done. They only show up when the Winds are calm and the seas are smooth. That was not Aristarchus. In fact, it's incredibly interesting that every time in the New Testament where we find Aristarchus mentioned, he's mentioned in the context of trouble, difficulty, hardship. And it's not that he was causing the hardship. How many of you have known people like that? Every time that there's trouble, there's fill in the name. But that's not Aristarchus. He didn't bring the trouble, but when the trouble came, man, he was there. It's really interesting. In the book of Acts, we find in chapter 19 that when there was a riot because of Paul's presence in the city, we read that Aristarchus from Macedonia was right there in the midst of the riot, helping Paul, supporting Paul. Later in the book of Acts, when Paul was shipwrecked and he lists the names of the people who are there with him, guess who's mentioned? Aristarchus. Aristarchus was with Paul when there was a riot. Aristarchus was was with Paul when there was a shipwreck and the boat was going down. Aristarchus was there. And Aristarchus... Is, is here in Colossians chapter 4 when Paul was in prison. He's one of his companions while he's in prison. Now, we're not told what it was that Aristarchus did in these hard times. Maybe he was just there. Maybe what he brought was the simple, encouraging ministry of presence. How many of you in your personal lives have understood by experience 
that when you're facing a difficult time and, and people show up and they're just there, that that's enough? As a pastor, I've, I've seen my fair share of people suffering deeply and seen my fair share of hardships. And I've seen my fair share of, of well-meaning, well-intentioned people who show up and feel like they have to have something to say. I've got to find some words to speak into this situation, which is filled with pain and and hardship and distress. And sometimes people show up and they say things that shouldn't be said. They say things that are not helpful. They say stupid things. Sorry. When sometimes what's better is if you just are there and present. How many of you have read the book of Job? You know, Job suffers pretty significantly in chapter 1. And then we're told that he had three friends who show up. And those three friends do the right thing when they show up for seven days and they keep their mouths shut. And then they begin to open their mouths and begin to speak, sharing, oh, high-sounding theology and philosophy. But at the end of the book, God says, you know, I'm angry with the three of you because you have not spoken the truth about my servant Job or about me. They would have done better if they just sat there in silence with their friend. And maybe that's what Aristarchus did in the midst of hardship. Maybe he was just there. Every team needs an Aristarchus. Now, here's a face that's a little more contemporary and maybe a little more familiar. Charles Colson. If you're from my generation, you remember him well. Former special counsel to President Nixon, who was the lawyer involved in the Watergate scandal. So as a result of that, Charles Colson went to prison. Um, he's a man who had a very, very public and very embarrassing failure. But he's a man who met Christ in prison and was transformed. Sound familiar? Like Onesimus. And he's a man who picked up the pieces and finished strong. This is Chuck Colson with all of the books that he wrote. After his conversion. Some of the best books I've ever read were written by Chuck Colson. Because he took that, that brilliant legal mind which was transformed by the gospel of Jesus Christ and he turned it into kingdom use. Now, Chuck Colson was not the first man to fail and then get back up and go on to be useful to the Savior who redeemed him. The Bible is full of stories like that. And the next man in Colossians chapter 4 is such a man. Mark, the recovered friend. Mark was a man who got a second chance. 
Mark was the man who fell hard, but then he got back up. He didn't stay down. He made a mistake. He wiped out, but he refused to let that define him. You know, when we look at the story of Mark, it begins to unfold in the book of Acts. In Acts chapter 13, when Paul went out on his first missionary journey, Mark was part of the team. In Acts chapter 13, I I, I believe it's in verse 13, it it, it tells us that, that John Mark went with Paul. But later in that chapter, later in Acts chapter 13, we see that Mark abandoned Paul. He went back to Jerusalem. Text doesn't tell us why. Maybe he got homesick. Maybe he missed mama's cooking. We don't know exactly why, but he went home. And this was a problem for Paul later on when Barnabas wanted to take Mark and Paul said, no way, I'm not taking that guy. He's already bailed out. Not taking him with us. And as a result of that, the book of Acts says there arose a sharp dispute between Paul and Barnabas. Barnabas took Mark and Paul took Silas. They split up. But the issue was over Mark. Because Mark had accompanied Paul, but Mark abandoned Paul. But Barnabas took Mark under his wing and began to, began to work with him. And, and it's not the end of the story for Mark. Because he was restored to Paul. Here in Colossians, he says, man, if, if Mark comes, welcome him, receive him. He's back in my good graces. But even that's not the end of the story for Mark. In 2 Timothy chapter 4, the very last letter that Paul wrote in 2 Timothy chapter 4, here's what Paul says. Only Luke is with me. Get Mark and bring him with you. Because he is useful to me in my ministry. Is that great or what? Here's this guy who accompanied Paul, abandoned Paul, and now at the end of of Paul's time, he says, Mark is useful to me. Please get Mark and send him. You know what? Mistakes are going to happen. Mistakes are going to happen in your life. There may come a time when you blow it. You don't want to. But circumstances or temptation, whatever the the case, there may come a time when you make a mistake. But folks, I'm here to tell you because of the power of the gospel of Jesus Christ, one false step is not necessarily final or fatal. God forgives and God gives second chances. Along with Abraham, 
who was a serial liar, along with Moses, who impulsively tried to deliver God's people too soon, and he ended up killing an Egyptian. Along with David, who committed adultery. And in order to cover it up, added a little murder to the equation. Along with Peter, who denied Jesus three times. And yet in John 21, don't you love it? Jesus calls Peter and says, Peter, do you love me? Yes, Lord, you know I love you. Then feed my sheep, feed my sheep, feed my sheep. He restored Peter to ministry. Mark reminds us that God forgives and gives second chances. The next person we meet is Jesus Justice. Call him the unsung hero. Jesus was his Jewish name. Justice was his Roman name. We really don't know that much about him. Except that he was a source of comfort for Paul. That's what the text tells us. He was a source of comfort. They proved a comfort for me. Jesus, Justice, and and the other Jews who were working alongside of him. He just seems to be one of those guys behind the scenes. He didn't get the limelight. Probably didn't want the limelight. He was willing to stay in the shadows and let someone else get the attention. He was an unsung hero, but a source of comfort and a vital member of the team. So we've met Tychicus and Onesimus and Aristarchus and Mark and Jesus Justice. Next, we come to Epaphras, the most valuable player on the team. Now, how do I know he's probably the most valuable player, the MVP of the team? Well, it's interesting that he gets a whole lot more ink than anybody else. Epaphras, who's one of you, a servant of Christ Jesus, sends greetings. He's always wrestling in prayer for you that you may stand firm in all the will of God, mature and fully assured. I vouch for him that he's working hard for you and for those that lay out a sea in Hierapolis. This is, this is the second time in the book of Colossians that Epaphras is pointed out for his prayers. The other reason that I, I believe he's the MVP is because of what you're looking at there. It's called a chiasm. It's a Hebrew and Greek literary device where the Greek letter for key or X, it looks like, like this, like our X does. And it's a literary device where the authors put the central point at the, at the point where it comes together. And several years ago when I was preparing this, I just, I thought to myself, I wonder, I I just wonder if there might be a chiasm here and if Epaphras might be at the middle. And look, when you put it together and you start listing the names, they move down to Epaphras and then they move right back out and it's parallel. And who's at the center? The guy who prays. 
And for Epaphras, prayer was not a casual hobby or an occasional activity like it is for maybe you. You can see that for for Epaphras, it was work because of the way his prayers are described. He prays continually, he prays fervently, and he prays purposefully. He's always wrestling in prayer for you. And he he prays with purpose. And I want you to notice what the content of his prayer is. He's always wrestling in prayer for you that you may stand firm in all the will of God, mature and fully assured. Boy, that's challenging for me. Because I don't know about, I don't know how it works here in Pennsylvania, but just about everywhere else I've been in the world, I've noticed that when people pray, particularly in small groups, now I'm, I'm going to run the risk of offending absolutely everybody here. and It's not my heart my intent to offend everybody. But I've just noticed that in many of our prayers for people, they seem to be so superficial. Oh, God, please. My Aunt Martha's suffering with pain in her big toe. God, please heal Aunt Martha's big toe. I'm sorry if you got an Aunt Martha that's suffering with a big toe pain. I love Aunt Martha too. Nobody wants Aunt Martha to suffer with a big toe. But you understand what I'm saying. So often we pray such superficial prayers. I challenge you. I challenge you. Just go back into the New Testament letters and read every one of Paul's prayers and see what you find. All of Paul's prayers are praying for people to have spiritual insight spiritual strength. And you know, I I read somewhere in a book that sometimes God brings trials into our lives in order to mature us, in order to build our character. And I wonder sometimes when we're praying for God to quickly alleviate a trouble or a difficulty or a trial, if we're not working counter to God's purposes that he may have brought that in order to bring maturity to that person, and we're praying that God quickly removes it. Now, again, I love Aunt Martha. Don't go out of here saying, man, the preacher hates Martha's. <laughs> but I think so often our prayers are so superficial. And Pastor Mark, I don't know, but... <laughs> Every church needs a prayer warrior. Every church needs people who may not be visible, but they're heard. I've got two names written here in my notes. People where I pastored, first church I planted, I'll never forget Bill Umstead coming to me and saying, Pastor, we need a prayer ministry in this church. And I said, Bill, take it, run with it. And he developed an incredible prayer ministry within our church. Kim Davis, church I pastored in Huntsville, Alabama, 
came to me and said, Pastor, God's called me to pray. That's my spiritual gift. I pray. Can I encourage others within our church to pray? And I said, Kim, go. And it radically transformed the life of our church. I don't know. I think Epaphras is the MVP. Then we come to Luke, the talented specialist. You know, on just about every team, you've got one, maybe a few individuals who just got loads of talent. You know, they got it all. And it's refreshing when you see people who are loaded down with talent and they're team players. They, they take their gifts and, and they're simply humble about it. They just take their gifts and they give them to God, whatever those gifts may be. And sometimes it's pretty amazing how God has gifted some people. I mean, Luke was an impressive guy. He was a doctor. He traveled with Paul on his missionary journeys. He was a physician. He was a historian. He was an author. He, he wrote the book of Luke. He wrote the book of Acts. I personally think he wrote the book of Hebrews, but I'm not going to fight about that. He wrote a lot of stuff in the New Testament. He was a talented guy. And he gave all that he had to Jesus to be used for his kingdom purposes. Here's a guy that's a Luke. This is Dr. Bill Cotrere. He was a good friend. He was the doctor that delivered both of my babies. Delivered our babies when we were in seminary in Dallas. He had a thriving, thriving practice in the city of Dallas. Big. Made a lot of money. But he loved the Bible and he loved ministry. So do you know what he did? He quit being a doctor and gave up his thriving medical practice so he could go to Dallas Theological Seminary. And Dr. Cotrere graduated with a theology degree. So he could go back to being a doctor? No, so he could go back to being a professor at a seminary. So he could write books on medical ethics and make a whole lot less money that he was making when he was a doctor, but he took all of his gifts and he gave them to the king. And folks, you have gifts given by God for the express purpose that they be used Some of you have gifts to teach. Some of you have gifts to write. Gifts to lead, to organize, to disciple, to pray, to evangelize, to sing, to encourage, to be present. Every single one of you in this building has been gifted by God through his Holy Spirit with some capacity to serve God's kingdom purposes. 
Then we come to Nympha, the gracious hostess. Verse 15, to Nympha and the church in her house. Now, if Luke was the guy who gave his gifts to God, Nympha was the woman who gave her home to God. Women have always played a huge part, huge role in God's kingdom. And Nympha played a huge role by giving her house. That's what she had to give. This was centuries before they had church buildings. So churches met in houses, churches met in homes. And Nympha just said, here's my home. Here's my house. Use it for the kingdom. So there's the team. Each person's different. Each person is unique. They were all players on the same team. They got in the game and they played as a team. Are you in the game? Don't be a spectator. Get in the game. Join the team. We need you on the team. Now, you'll notice that I have left out two names. So we'll finish with them. And I think the Holy Spirit wants us to understand that we need to get in the game and play as a team. But secondly, I think he tells us that we need to finish well. Finish well. Because the next name on the list is Demas. Sad story. He started well. But the trajectory of his life is a slow slide away from God toward the world. As we see Demas develop within Scripture, Demas was a fellow worker in Philemon. That's how he's called. He's a fellow worker. Then when we get here to Colossians, there's, there's no comment. But then again, in 2 Timothy, the last book that Paul wrote... We see that he forsook Paul because he loved the world. Paul writes this, do your best to come to me quickly for Demas, because he loved this world, has deserted me and has gone to Thessalonica. It's a sad and tragic story. He didn't finish well. And you guys know, it's not, it's not really how important the start of the race is, it's how you finish the race that really matters. And Demas didn't finish well. He wiped out. Demas reminds us that uh, you can't win with everyone. Unfortunately, in ministry, Pastor Mark, there are people that you invest in. There are people you pour your life into. There are people that you have all kinds of hopes for and and they wipe out. There are going to be disappointments when team members desert and join the other side. But Demas, I think, is here to remind us that we need to be careful that we don't get caught in the slow slide away from God toward the world. Because the, <coughs> excuse me, the bright lights of the world are pretty dazzling. The forbidden fruit 
of the flesh is sweet. And the clever traps of Satan are dangerous. And if you're somewhere on that slow slide, stop yourself and come back. Don't be a Demas. But if you do crash, be a mark and get back up. The last guy on the list is Archippus, the work in progress. And Paul tells him just very quickly here, tell Archippus, see to it that you complete the ministry that you have received in the Lord. We don't know what ministry Archippus had, but what we do know is that Paul tells him, once you've started it, it, you need to bring it to completion. Finish it. Wrap it up. Bring it to an end. He was a work in progress. And you know, folks, we're all works in progress. Philippians chapter 1 and verse 6 reminds us of that. Being confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Jesus Christ. I'm a work in progress. You're a work in progress. Be faithful and let God complete his work, what he has begun in you. Clever cultural lie, God can only use someone who is super gifted. That is not the truth. That's a lie. Unfortunately, too many of God's people believe that lie. And because they believe that lie, they do nothing to serve the church, to serve the kingdom, or to serve the Savior who gave his life to redeem them. God has gifted you. Use your gifts and talents. Whatever they are, do something. Edward Everett Hale put it very well. I am only one, but still, I am one. I cannot do everything, but I can do something. And because I cannot do everything, I will not refuse to do the something I can do. I can't do everything, but I can do something. You can't do everything, but you can do something. So do the something you can do. Clever clever cultural lie, God can only use someone who's super gifted. No, no. What's the solid biblical truth? God can use anyone who's faithful. God can use anyone who's faithful. You, even me, real people. Father, thank you for the encouragement of your word. Thank you for the fact that your son redeemed Those who are not noble, not famous, just ordinary people. So that you would get the glory for what you do in us. Father, may your church here in Dallas, Pennsylvania be fully deployed. May this team find a way to find all of its gifts in full use for the King's service. Amen.